Okay, welcome to Power Pivots, the podcast where we explore the stories behind the fundamental career shifts and changes that have made all the difference. I'm your host, I go by Hatu, and today we're joined by Mark Howland. Mr. Howland, it's so good to have you, bro. Great to be here, my man. I'm excited to talk to you. Obviously, I've seen the growth and continuous growth that you guys have with Breadless, and I'm excited to hear a little bit more about the story, how it started, and go from there. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So folks know how we do it. We jump right into the PowerPoints. So PowerPoints, for those who don't know, are three words or phrases that describe you, encapsulate who you are. So Mark, that being said, what would you say are your PowerPoints? PowerPoints. I would say I am growth-minded, purpose-driven, and tenacious. And if I had a fourth one, I would say thankful. Okay. All right. All right. I never had someone take a fourth one, but I'll give it to you. It's not bad. (laughs) It's not bad at all. It came to mind. had to say it. There you go. There you go. Growth-minded, purpose-driven, tenacious, and thankful. Awesome. Well, I'm sure that we will get more into why you chose those exactly, but I think the best way to get started and to understand a little bit more is your hindsight story. So they always say that the story is told in hindsight and hindsight is 2020. So Mark, put your 2020 glasses on, look back. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you are today? For sure. You know, it honestly feels like a lifelong manifestation to be here where I am right now growing breadless. But I mean, it all started you know, grew up the product of a single mom trying to raise two kids in the city of Cleveland. She did not have a lot of time, so was running around giving us a lot of, you know, fast food, just like a lot of people growing up. I was very much a product of scholarship, went to private schools on a full ride. I feel like that gave me opportunity and changed my life in, in a lot of material ways. Went to Brown University on a full ride as well. I played football, ran track there, then ended up being a business economics major went off into the world of Wall Street, and then uh, thereafter went to business school at Harvard. Throughout all of that time, I was the guy going into every restaurant asking for the low-carb, gluten-free option, the lettuce bun, the lettuce wrap instead of bread, and it was always the afterthought product. And if you know me, you will know I'm the breadless guy. Like, I don't eat bread. Obviously, Hatu, you know this, but... And so it feels very aligned that, you know, 10 years later, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why isn't there a place that takes what's the afterthought and makes it the core product, delivers it in a format that is delicious, packed nutritional value, uh, available to masses at scale. And that was really kind of the idea behind Brellas to start and, and to be where we are, having launched in Detroit and then expanding is, uh, feels like my entire life journey culminating to this point to bring you know, healthy on the go food to communities and neighborhoods nationwide, eventually. So I have to say a couple of things, obviously. I know you pretty well at this point. Two things. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, Mark is being very humble. A lot of the things that he has accomplished in the past and continues to accomplish are pretty impressive achievements, right? So, you know, from a scholastic standpoint, from a professional standpoint, and from what he's doing from Breadless right now, definitely a very high achieving individual that we're speaking to here, number one. Number two, and this almost gets to the crux of what we're talking about, he absolutely is gluten-free. We had to beg this man on his birthday to eat a piece of cake, (laughs) (laughs) which he had like a bite of it and like turned away. It was like a child like trying to eat like a carrot. 
<laughs> he, he was not happy with it. So I can tell that this is something that you're very passionate about and definitely makes sense as to why this is the purpose and the calling that you've gone towards. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your power pivot, right? So obviously you spoke about going to Wall Street and you didn't speak about this before. You worked in investment banking and eventually in private equity and then went to business school. You went to Harvard Business School and then afterwards decided that you wanted to go into something that was like a little smaller and different. I guess talk to me a little bit about that. Like how did you do it? Why did you do it? Yeah, to some extent, the early stage of my journey was not necessarily as intentional as it may have seemed, right? My mom was a public defender for 40 years in the city of Cleveland, and I did really well academically at Brown, which enabled me to be positioned for some cool opportunities. I remember asking people on the football team, if I have a great GPA and I want to learn a lot, what are some careers of interest? They recommended investment banking. So next thing you know, this firm, Goldman Sachs, I'd never heard of, was doing an information session. And I started chatting with the people there. They gave me an offer full time. And I self-selected into the what I learned to be the public finance group at the time because I did not have anybody to turn to in my immediate network who understood this industry inside and out. Um, I then was in the specialist subgroup there, as you mentioned, raising money for sports stadiums uh, before focusing on technology, media, telecom. And then after went to the buy side, I was unfamiliar with private equity as well, but I was informed that this would be another way to further build my skill set, understand how companies operate, understand what it's like to think like an investor. So I ended up at the Carlisle Group, basically via an opportunity that had arisen that I had to you know, sort of take advantage of and show up in an interview the next day. And it's really kind of a whirlwind in terms of how all that happened. And then you know, went to business school. And I remember thinking about a conversation that I had even with an operating partner at Carlisle who had said, you know, if you were doing life and living your life to the fullest, you may have five to six careers. Uh, in your journey. And I also was somebody who wasn't from that world, right? I grew up a single mom trying to raise two kids. No one in my family had ever had a finance background. And so I thought about life really differently. And uh, growing up without a father, I was really thoughtful around like sort of the finality of life and like, what is my purpose and where am I uniquely positioned at value? And when I coupled that sort of background with this conversation I had with somebody who was clearly significantly more experienced than me, who had been through many different careers and back and to sort of empower me and encourage me to sort of follow my heart and where my interests lie and where I can make impact, that kind of gave me an open door in, in terms of thinking things a little bit differently. So then when I was at business school, I was open-minded to opportunities that would be presented and thought of ways that I could further develop and hone my skill set. And, and to think, you know, honestly about where my interests lie. Like while I was working on Wall Street, anytime I got you know, so a bonus check or something like that. Instead of thinking about investing in public markets or where maybe a lot of my peers, what they were doing, I was instead seeking out entrepreneurs and figuring out ways that I could get involved or get hands-on and be helpful uh, in any way, shape or form. To some extent where some of these entrepreneurs that would be like, Mark, take a step back. Uh, you know, this is not your startup. But that was a clear indication of where my interests lied. And so then when I was off in business school, there was an opportunity that came about to make an impact in the construction supply chain to help streamline the flow of money so that everyone could get paid what they were expected to be paid and when. And that was something that truly spoke to my heart. And also flow of money was sort of aligned from a finance background in terms of where my skill sets lied. And so I, I went out on a limb to pursue this on this journey, moved to Nashville, Tennessee, focused on working with a gentleman on launching a construction uh, technology company. And, you know, from there, throughout that entire journey, you know, I was the guy going into 
every restaurant asking for this breadless alternative. That part of the journey kind of really stemmed from being a two-sport collegiate athlete, you know, playing football and, and running track at Brown, that what I put in my body significantly impacted my energy levels, physical well-being, and even my performance, my reaction time and ability to think quickly was determining what I was eating. And bread was the thing that always you know, made me feel tired and bloated. So uh, I realized that when I didn't eat bread, I just felt much better. So at Goldman, at Carlisle, at, at Harvard, and, and with this company, I was the guy going everywhere, uh, taking the bread off of my sandwiches and trying to find something to eat. And so it wasn't until a decade later, I'm like, at the point where I you know, transitioned my role with the previous company from an operating role to a strategic advisory role and thinking about what I was going to do next, I was just venting to, you know, my then fiance and, you know, now wife LC, who obviously is a good friend of yours, about why isn't there a place that exists that elevates the breadless alternative from the afterthought to the core product and you know, delivers it in a format that's convenient, highly flavorful, but also packed with nutritional value available to mass at scale. And so she just started sending me fire emojis back via text saying, I think this can be real. I can't think of anybody more passionate than you about this. And I've been along with you on this journey. Um, as well. And you've got the finance background. I have the marketing background. So she worked for the top marketing and advertising agencies uh, in New York City before she went to business school. And then we brought in another co-founder, Ryan, who had met through a mutual friend uh, in New York, who is a culinary mastermind. He opened Angel Harlem in New York. He's met the International Culinary Institute. He's an exclusive caterer for just phenomenal brands um, out there as well. So he just creates really great food. And it was actually his idea to say, okay, if we're going to explore something without you know, bread, I also don't want to use iceberg lettuce because it's just water and has no nutritional value and no flavor. So instead, let's use hearty leafy super greens like Swiss chard, turnip greens, collard greens, and dino kale as the foundation of our offerings. And you know, at that point, it wasn't just let's go all in full steam ahead. It was well, let's explore what some customers might think. And so the thought process was, how do we just get this to the market and get some feedback as efficiently as possible? Which is why he came up with a few options wrapped in leafy super greens. And then given I've spent a lot of my career in the fitness world, I thought of low hanging fruit would be to just start calling gyms throughout Detroit to get some feedback. And so LA Fitness, Crunch Fitness, the YMCA Fitness Works, made a website on GoDaddy, had a friend from Brown make a logo for $100. It's just not that logo. This is <laughs> version. And we made a standing banner. I took a picture of, on an iPhone with my, my hand holding a sandwich on this banner. And we started selling sandwiches out of brown paper bags and chips. This was not something that we expected. We had no real infrastructure to scale. It was just sort of beta testing, getting market traction and reaction from people. And, and everything kind of cascaded from there. So that's kind of how things got started. And it kept snowballing. Wow. Yeah. And it's so funny because like I was there for the beginning, right? I still remember the glorified dorms that we were living in when you guys were making it in the kitchen and oh, 100%. proof of concept and like to see like where you guys are right now is absolutely astounding. I think that there's a resounding theme that goes through your story, Mark. And it's like, we always talk about making the best of your network and taking advantage of your network. But I think one of the things that's the next step that you do is being very attuned to your surroundings and getting the right advice. Like what the operating partner told you about having five or six different careers, that's something that we talk about here all the time. I tell people that your career is a culmination of a bunch of different jobs that you've done. And it should vary because your interests vary. You grow, you learn about different things, you have different interests, passions, and things of that nature. So what is your process for information gathering 
like overall like how do you go about this in these different roles and then also i want to know in particular obviously you guys started this concept but what was some of like the research or resources that you used to be able to like get breadless off the ground Absolutely. I think the best way to go about that is just kind of speak about it through the lens of how we thought about it with Breadless and what we did. So, you know, ultimately to start with, it was, is there a product that we think could solve this problem of there's a limited availability of healthy on the go options, especially that don't have bread that are available on the go that actually taste good and won't fall apart on you and be accessible. And so it was, let's test something and see if we can come up with a product that would be effective and that would work. At the same time, we were doing market research. And to do that, we would use a lot of different data sources. Of course, Google and in business school, you know, Elsie was at Michigan Ross getting her MBA at the time. And so she was utilizing a lot of resources that were available there to continue to extract some insights from. We looked at market sizing and learned in the process that there's you know, 87 million people that are eating out at quick service restaurants daily. And there's 37 million of them who are opting for healthier options, that there's 25% of people who are gluten-free, of which a portion of these people are choosing to be gluten-free for their various health decisions, whereas others have a legitimate medical condition called celiac disease where they have to avoid gluten. At the same time, there's 15% of people who are seeking out purely just low-carb options as well. And so when you look at all that math and then you think about, we're actually creating an entire new category. There's a category that exists and a market that exists for sandwiches. There's also a category and a market that exists for sort of salads and bowls. And Breadless is creating its own category uh, for Breadless meals in a category that doesn't yet exist. And so that creates a potential market opportunity and customer base, which is ultimately anybody who wants to live a health conscious lifestyle you know, on the go. And of course, if you're low carb or gluten free, this is 100% for you. But even if you're not and you just enjoy something that's healthier with flavor on the go, Breadless is great for you. So the data that we accumulated from these data sources, these are just you know research databases that you can get access to in any business school environment. Or frankly, you can also start to get this information via Google, which may point you to a data source as well. But then just getting real market reaction and feedback from people as well. Like Before we had any money go into this, we just started selling sandwiches out of brown paper bags uh, <laughs> inside of local gyms, right? which didn't cost any money to do it, uh, but was able to get real traction and feedback from people. At the same time, once we realized that we started to have something where, okay, people were buying this product and asking us for catering. You know, of course, you were at Michigan with LC, all the student groups there started asking us if we can cater as well. So once we started realizing that there was demand for the product, then I thought it was really important to learn as much about the industry specifically. You know, Ryan had spent time in a food space. I had not personally spent time in the sort of quick service or fast casual arena. And so I thought it was critical that I understand how the day-to-day -day works from a fundamental level and how the unit economics work and just what the operational processes would be like for the lowest level person. So my thought process was, let me go get a job at whatever place will give me a job, frankly. Uh, and I ended up getting a job at Jimmy John's in Ann Arbor for 10 bucks an hour as a sandwich maker just to learn as much as I could about what it's like to operate in a in a quick service environment and make 100 sandwiches to see what it's like at that level. Wait, Mark, hold on. I'm sorry. You went to go work at Jimmy John's. What did the hiring manager say when he saw your resume? <laughs> That's a good uh, question. He's actually with us now as well. The hiring oh, wow. manager joined us at, at Breadless. But at the time, 
I thought about also him and where he is and what is his position as a GM, right? You're in a high volume store with a lot of Michigan undergrad students as your employees who are completely sort of on the go, on and off, may work for a month, then may quit or work for two months and quit, et cetera. So he was used to employees kind of coming in and out. And what he needed was somebody who was reliable, who would come in and care and get the job done. So thinking through his frame of reference, the way I positioned it, even so knowing he saw my background was, you know, my wife's getting her MBA at some point in my life. I want to open a restaurant, felt like it would be important to get some operating experience. I'm serve safe manager certified. So I went and did research on like, what are the designations that are important? And so I indicated that to be an indication that I do a little bit about expectations and then said, you know, I'll work hard, show up day to day and do a great job for you. And I tried to just make it difficult for him to say no. I was also only asking for $10 an hour. And I was like, can I start tomorrow? And then uh, next thing you know, I was working there, uh, you know, put my hat on. And I think the I think the 20-some-year-old students thought I was uh, their age. <laughs> I actually do remember seeing the pictures of this. Um, and it was quite something. Yeah, absolutely. It was. I remember when Elsie told me that you're doing this. I was like, no way. And she's like, no, I'll show you. And I saw the pictures. And, you know, now seeing how it's added to this experience, it makes a bunch of sense. But like having that foresight to do that and the intangibles that you're able to learn, or excuse me, even just the tangible aspects that you're able to learn from that experience far supersede the $10 that you have, right? And I think that a lot of times we discuss this here too, where people take little bits and pieces from every job that they have to be able to go towards the careers or the passions that they actually have. Um, Obviously, the manager that you had then bringing him onto your team was probably the most valuable part of that experience but what would you say other than that was the most valuable aspect of having done that jimmy john's experience as continued research i could speak all day on this subject i I absolutely think getting that job was one of the most important things that could have done i mean i learned number one what it's actually like to do the job right so that that helps if i hope to be a good manager i think it's critically important to have empathy and to understand the position of those who you are asking to perform certain tasks or responsibilities right to understand what they have to do and what they have to work through and and the difficulties of it as well and so i I learned a ton about the day-to-day i mean i was doing everything from cleaning the floors stocking shelves making sandwiches slicing new you know ingredients washing dishes And so I knew kind of the ins and outs of that. And I also, that helps me at this stage to have a relationship with our director of operations that is built on sort of mutual respect and trust because he was actually my, my manager at one point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Inside the store. And so I understand, I can think of, oh, Hey, remember when we did this at JJ's and we have a relatable experience that we can speak to that was mind blowing as well as just even thinking about why they made certain decisions that they did, right? I mean, and I think they're a phenomenal organization in terms of how they have operationally figured out how to have a highly successful franchise system in conjunction with corporate system by operationalizing everything. And so I thought that was something really important to see sort of from the ground floor, as well as you know, frankly, they have a lettuce wrap option there too. And so it was really unique and interesting to see kind of that production process and ultimately to learn that that is hard to do and it's their secondary product, which helped to also reinforce to me the value proposition of of taking something that is otherwise the afterthought and making it the core product 
and what that means to be intentional about it. Another analogy that came to mind that I thought about it when I was there is like right now, if you're someone who eats chicken wings, like where are you going to go to get your chicken wings? Buffalo Wild Wings, right? Like yeah. probably a chicken wing place, right? But yeah. if the chicken wing place didn't exist and the pizza place is the only place that offers chicken wings, you're going to get your chicken wings at the pizza place, Correct. right? R- right now, the breadless alternative is the afterthought at most every place. And therefore, people don't have a place to go to if they say, I want something that's breadless, that's flavorful, that's delicious. There is no go-to spot. And we are positioning breadless to be that go-to spot. So I had a multitude of learnings there. And I'm so grateful for the experience that I had. And I thought it was critically important to the journey that we're on. That's awesome. So at this point, we've talked about the research. You've done the market research. You're like, cool. This is something that's viable. Done proof of concept. You're like, awesome. You've learned more about the operations to get things moving. Let's talk about capital. Let's talk about fundraising. Obviously, you have a background in that, so that probably helped propel you quite a bit. But for folks who do not, like, what were some of the aspects and components that went into that process to be able to get you guys up and started? For sure. And to be clear, fundraising for anything in any environment is never easy. That's for sure. And I guess to put context, you know, we were a Black-owned, minority-based business launching a healthy brick-and-mortar fast, casual concept in the middle of COVID, right? And when you think about all those lenses for fundraising, it's certainly not easy, but like anything in sort of the sales world, which fundraising is ultimately sales from the standpoint of you're transferring certainty to somebody else to be convinced to follow you on this journey. It's a numbers game in large part. And so the first start, once you've made the decision that, hey, this is something that you believe in, that you've tested, that you have proof of concept for, and that you believe is backable, then it's figuring out the multitude of those who could support you on that journey. And of course, in the early days before you have you know, significant traction and proven economics, your people are largely taking a bet on you. And so recognizing that my thought process was first turning to those who knew me, right? And that would be sort of honestly old bosses. I mean, some of my old bosses that I worked for were the first people to want to back us on this journey because they ultimately believed in me, uh, as well as some other friends that came along for the journey as well, who expressed uh, belief in me and us and in the concept as well. And then once we kind of had a core foundation of people who believed in us and were supporting us on this journey, then it was, okay, how do we now leverage this traction and this proof of demand and buy-in from other investors who know you to get the larger investor to anchor the round? And the way I helped to find that was I literally used this resource called PitchBook Data and typed in every single fast, casual, quick service restaurant concept that I could think of that had received progressive rounds of financing and typed them in. So like Sweetgreen, for example, I typed in who had ever invested in Sweetgreen. I got a list of hundreds of people. And then I took that list and I put every single person's name into LinkedIn just to see if I had a mutual connection to any of these people. Right. And then that ended up yielding a connection to one guy who I didn't know at the time, but ended up being you know, a material investor who uh, was a material investor in Green. He was connected through somebody I knew well. They provided a referral. Uh, next thing you know, this guy in due diligence puts me on the phone with the founder of Green to conduct further due diligence. Uh, and they had confirmed a lot of the thesis that we had talked about around this being an afterthought and 
there being a market opportunity and, and also belief that we had a team that was fired up about this to make things happen. And then he asked us to overnight sandwiches to New York City, which we had no idea how to do. <laughs> and a friend uh, at UPS, uh, Winchenay, who helped us to figure out how to make that happen. And then 30 hours later, he ate these sandwiches that LC had made and, and ran to Home Depot to put in a box and figure out how to ship that he enjoyed it with his girlfriend and somebody else. And next thing you know, they wanted to write our first you know, sort of material check towards this mission to bring nutritious breadless meals to neighborhoods everywhere across the country. And, and from there, we ended up then getting a lot of other people to come around us to make this happen from, from the Detroit scene specifically. You know, we made a conscious decision to launch this in Detroit. So from Detroit Venture Partners, Tech Town Detroit, even grants from the city, Motor City Match was from the Detroit Economic Development Growth Corporation, uh, and several parties, you know, it takes a village to make you know, things happen. And so we are extremely grateful and appreciative for all the people who came around us in this journey and as well as others, you know, to this date who are in the food and restaurant scene who have come around us as well to give us critical insight and advice at times we needed. I mean, for all sorts of tactical as well as strategic things that we need help with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think throughout your story, what is just resounding there, I'm going back to those PowerPoints, right? The tenacity, you had the purpose that is already established, something that's near and dear to you. And just using that growth mindset and the tenacity to like be able to push and literally will it to happen. It's just amazing, you know, even being able to observe this story myself, there's so many details that I did not know of like the mindset that you're able to take to do this. And I wanted to know exactly, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, why did you guys decide on Detroit specifically? And why have you guys overall focused on the Midwest? Yeah, the starting point for Detroit, it ended up saying like, why not Detroit from the standpoint of yeah. Detroit is a major metropolitan market, of course, smaller than New York City, you know, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, that said, it is still a major city with, with hundreds of thousands of people who largely don't have access to a lot of healthy on-the-go foods. It has a robust material supply chain. Not a lot of people know Detroit has 1,700 urban gardens and farms, and we try to source locally as much as possible at Breadless as well. Not to mention the ties personally. You know, LC grew up in this city, and so it's deep roots here. I grew up down the street in Cleveland, very comparable city, but smaller. And Ryan, other co-founder, had been here for eight years really entrenched into the food scene, the supply market. And we thought it had material need. I grew up in a similar type of neighborhood and realized we didn't have any healthy on-the-go options, but was it because I wouldn't need it or was it because we didn't have access to them, right? Was it the chicken or the egg? And then to compound that, we tested the market in Detroit first too. We, we started selling sandwiches, I mentioned, out of brown paper bags in local gyms. And people were leaving notes for us at the gym asking us how they could get access to this product more regularly which further just solidified in our mind, like, why not Detroit? There's a lot of great dynamics here. And from the thinking of our vision is to bring breadless neighborhoods across the country and create hundreds of entrepreneurs via affordable breadless franchises while giving people healthy food that tastes good. The Midwest, we think, is also a phenomenal starting point for that because the Midwestern market and demographic is more representative of the rest of America than the major metropolitan markets, of course, like the New York cities, you know, Miami, LA. And so for those reasons, we put a stake in the ground in Detroit and we couldn't be more grateful for the community that's come around us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like you said, home for those who had to order off the menu. So I definitely completely understand that for sure. Now, why did you guys in particular decide to do brick and mortar? I know a lot of times we see some of these food delivery services and 
meal plans and things of that nature. People tried to do food trucks as well. Why did you guys decide that brick and mortar was the way to go here? Several reasons. One, we had a really big vision for the brand. And I think brand itself is really important to be in front of people and to meet people where they are at, especially in a increasingly digital world where you're on X, Y, and Z third-party app, and there's a million options that you're looking for, for you know, delivery or pickup options. So we think meeting people where they're at, being accessible to them in the community was really uh, important. And to have full control and flexibility over every single thing that we did. And so having our own space enabled us to have all those options. And we sort of use that space that we opened as a omni-channel way to serve customers, right? So of course we had walk-in capabilities that customers can walk in and order a leafy super green sandwich or salad, rice bowl, soup, cold-pressed juices, vegan or gluten-free desserts. But we also are on DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, all of that. We also have our own app in the Google Play Store and in the App Store for customers to place orders for pickup, delivery, curbside, etc. And we've also extended the model out further to offsite catering, to even having vending fridges that are available at offsites inside of companies uh, and workspaces as well. So we wanted to create a business in a box that could fit in anywhere and be successful, and which would ultimately is a component of the toolkit. Or in the future, when we have franchisees, wherever you want to open one up, here are the robust, tangible ways that you could engage with and serve your customer base all through that one footprint. And out of that footprint, you know, we have multiple ways and multiple service lines as well, so that the front line can serve customers as they come in, but then a back line that serves those third party and catering orders as well. So you get the benefits of the sort of ghost kitchen model, but do it in a more accessible and brand building way. But a component to that is also what's your build out cost, right? So we've also designed a brand that would not have like a hood system built into it. So that makes our build out costs significantly lower than like a Chipotle or, you know, a brand that has like a grill would be. We have a convection oven, we'd still roast and season and cook our items in house, but, but we do it in a way that doesn't require a uh, fryer or a, a grill. Okay. Now let's switch to advice, Mark. Let's take this from the perspective of pre-pivot and post-pivot. So pre-pivot, what is some advice looking back now that you'd give yourself? And then post-pivot, what's some advice that you currently give yourself right now? Advice pre-pivot. To be honest, I think the advice that I would give myself is comparable to the types of actions that we took. I mean, the advice that I would give myself or give anybody right before going into something is to try to understand the dynamics of the industry as much as possible, understand like why you're uniquely positioned in this space, talk to as many people in the industry as possible. So was trying to do research and understand those who have been there before and had successfully scaled similar enterprises and to try to do things that don't scale first uh, before trying to do things that will scale because you're going to have so many learnings in the process. So I think the advice that I give myself you know, post pivot is just to be consistently patient. I'm a person who is really driven and passionate and that can lead myself to have a lot of impatience, right? But I've talked to several advisors who have given us confidence that we are on the right track and we're doing the right things and to trust the process and to continue focus on having that that really successful multi-unit operation as the blueprint for scaling. But even as though I'm giving myself that advice to be patient, I'm still you know impatient and need to remind myself of that consistently. Oh, I know. I know 100%. But, you know, it's clear, obviously, that you guys have struck while the iron is hot here and clearly on the right path. But just, you know, wanted to know from you, I guess, like, what's next? Like, what are you excited about? 
Well, I'm super excited that we're opening our first expansion location in Rochester Hills, Michigan, and that is just going to be the next phase of entering an adjacent market and bringing Nutritious Brothers Meals to the city of Detroit and beyond is really what we're looking to do. I mean, this is a vision to expand nationwide via a combination of a lot of franchises, but also a few corporate stores. And we are here at a time where people are significantly underserved for low-carb, gluten-free, delicious on-the-go options. And so to have launched uh, about a year ago and to now be at the precipice of opening our second store and to see the way the community has reacted to us is extremely exciting. And we've also been brought into Little Caesars Arena, where the Pistons and the Red Wings play, into Comerica Park, where the Detroit Tigers play. And just see how much we've been embraced uh, is just a really empowering feeling. And so we could be more excited to be extending this traction to to our second build out and beyond and stay tuned for the next amazing 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 stuff congratulations congratulations and then before we wrap here mark i just wanted to ask you any parting words of wisdom i wanted to ask you know for those who are interested in pivoting away from investment banking or private equity or pivoting to something that they're more interested in and then those who are interested in pivoting more into hospitality, into restaurant space, into more healthy option space as well. What are some parting words of wisdom that you would give them? I would say, trust yourself, right? Throughout this journey of life, you've made a lot of decisions and you got to where you are, ultimately because you've trusted yourself. There's a lot of distractions out there and there's a lot of reasons that you could continue doing what you're doing. But at the end of the day, if you're just honest yourself with where do you get truly excited? Where do you get invigorated? Like, where does your heart tell you? It's coupling your brain with your heart and merging those into what feels right. And then trusting yourself in the process, you will be truly surprised at what may come out of that, right? Whether that's within your existing career in an expanding role, uh, changing companies, or becoming an entrepreneur. But I realize not every single person is necessarily destined to become an entrepreneur, but I would encourage you to be honest and open with yourself and trust yourself and your judgment and ultimately not be afraid to take a risk, a calculated risk. Well, there you have it, y'all. There you have it, Mark. I really appreciate you for coming on here. I'm really proud of what you guys are doing. Excited to see what the future has to come. Continue to look up to you guys. And thank you so much, man. Likewise, brother. Much love. Many blessings. And thank you all for tuning in. Please remember to like and subscribe for more. Most important pivot powerfully. Be well, everyone.